The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save. And save and win. This segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Two Under, Men's Performance Briefs, the unofficial underwear of the PGA Tour. Worn by PGA Tour players like Ricky Fowler, David Toms, Jerry Kelly, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, and Matt Everett, to name just a few. Your buddies are going to think you're a stud if they're even seeing you in your underwear, and that's a whole nother story. And your girlfriend and or wife is going to love the side effects, a visually enhanced profile. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management. It separates a man's most valuable assets from bodily contact to reduce unwanted skin-on-skin contact, providing less chafing, more control, and an altogether more luxurious feel. Start every round two under by wearing the coolest performance briefs on the market and use coupon code ONTHET20 to save 20% off your order at twounder.com. And that's the number two, U-N-D-R dot com. All right, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkavecchia. Let me give you some background on Mark. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. His family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980. He was named All-SEC in 1979, and that season Mark won the Furman Invitational. He turned pro in 1981, got his first win at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under and a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second-round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, he set a record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark has won 13 times on the PGA Tour, including like I say at the top, the 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon in a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's also won four times on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his career, he's had 193 top 10 finishes, 351 top 25s, and he's a great follow on Twitter, at Mark Kalk, and I'm very thrilled he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Mark, I want to start by going back to the time when you were a kid growing up in a small town in Nebraska and then moving to West Palm Beach, which seems like a pretty big culture shock. I read you came from a very small town. You go from there to West Palm. What was that like? Right. It was uh, it was a big switch. Uh, I grew up in a town of 920 people uh, total. And uh, when I uh, got to my eighth grade uh junior high school there was 1100 kids in in my class alone so uh yeah i went from uh two classes of 20 each to uh you know 1100 kids in my class so it, it, it took me a little bit to uh, adjust to that but uh i i think it was a, a good move in the long run for sure and then you know, as you progress and you get into college you go to the university of florida i had larry rinker on the show a few weeks ago and the two of you were yeah. teammates there talk about your decision to go play at us yeah, it was. Uh, I knew I wanted to stay in the state. Uh, I got a lot of offers from uh, pretty much all over the place. Uh, 
you know, Oklahoma State, Arizona State, blah, 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 Stanford. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm no mental genius by any stretch, but uh, I, I was pretty sure uh, I wanted to stay in the state. And I went to visit uh, actually Florida Southern in Lakeland, where Rocco and Lee Jansen uh, played. Uh, and I visited Florida, and I visited Florida State as well. And basically, I knew I wanted to play for a Division One school uh, against the best competition. So it was either Florida or Florida State. And, and from my home, and actually North Palm Beach, it was uh, two and a half hours closer. Angel was in Tallahassee. So that's kind of how I ended up uh, deciding on Florida. So I can't I can't skip over the fact that you said Florida Southern, good friend of ours, and a guy that's a regular on my show, Tom Patry, won the uh, national oh, yeah. championship at Florida Southern. So uh, when you when you yeah, talk Tom, about that, yeah. so talk about why they didn't win. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, yeah I've known Tom a long time, and a lot of guys have played at Florida Southern back in the uh, the, uh, the late seventies and early eighties. So. Uh, they had a fantastic facility and a, and a, and a great course, uh, but it, it was just uh, when I went to Florida, it just kind of all sunk in that I think I thought I needed to be a Gator. So talk about Larry Rinker. I think you guys played together for at least one season. What was it like teaming with Rink? Yeah, it was it was fun. Um, I played uh, when I first got down here. Larry and his younger brother Lee, who I think is my age. Uh, Larry's a few years older. And I think Lee might be one year younger, uh, but we were still playing uh, junior golf against each other. Uh, they, they lived in Stewart, and uh, again, I, I was in North Palm Beach, but we still uh, played a lot of golf against each other through uh, through high school and stuff. And then when I went to Florida, uh, yeah, there was Rank, and he kind of took me under his wing a little bit. Uh, Larry's been a guitar player forever, so he gave me a few guitar lessons, and uh, it was uh, it was fun to have him as a teammate. He was he was really really good. Uh, back in that uh, that era. And Marcus, you you mentioned your time in junior golf and, and you and Jackie Nicholas, Jack uh Jack's oldest son, you guys were often playing in the same tournaments and, and frequently Jack would be there in the crowd watching. So you got to know both of them pretty well. Talk about your your uh, relationship with the Nicholas family and then what it was like as a kid trying to play in front of the greatest golfer of all time. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Uh, we moved here in uh, the summer of 1973, and it was probably just a month later after we got here in July that I met uh, Jackie Jr. or Jack Nicholas II, and uh, he's the same age as I am. So uh, we played a lot of high school golf against each other, a lot of junior golf against each other, and uh, a lot of times when uh, when we'd be playing in uh, in high school matches, uh, I was the number one player, and so was so was Jackie. So uh, we always played against each other, and sure enough, uh, the next thing I know, Mr. Nicholas is uh, right there watching us. Uh, so pretty amazing coming from a little small town in Nebraska to having Jack Nicholas watch us play golf. Uh, so uh, he, he was he was great to me. Uh, long story short, I mean, throughout my whole high school and junior career and college career, uh, all the way through my, my pro career, uh, he, he's always been my idol. Um, he had a lot of great things to say to me in high school and junior golf and it meant a lot and uh, uh you know him and barbara just uh are, are the best so that, that's all there is to it was there added pressure did you feel pressure to perform when you knew that he was standing there watching you 
I, I did, but I was so excited. I, I just somehow either concentrated harder, but I, I played even better. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's one of those little inner talents that you have to have to be a, a really good uh, player, a really good professional player, is to be able to perform under pressure. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm standing over a shot and thinking to myself, you know, the greatest golfer in the world right now is, you know, watching me, uh, watching me hit this iron shot under this par three or par four or whatever. So I really, uh, I really buckled down and, and seemed to always play really good when, uh, when Jack was either watching me or, or later on tour in my uh, younger years uh, when I played with him. So Mark, I'm guessing it's, it's not a coincidence that your last tournament on the regular tour was a sponsor's exemption to play at the Memorial. I'm guessing that that was planned and that's the way you wanted to end it, where you wanted to end it. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Uh, I begged really hard. Uh, I begged Jack. Uh, I, I begged everybody at the memorial. Uh, my wife's from Columbus, Ohio, uh, so it all kind of worked out really uh, really well. Uh, I, I ended up missing the cut by a few shots, which is disappointing, but uh, still had a great time. And and it, it uh, that's where I met my wife, uh, Brenda, uh, right behind the 18th green in 2001. Uh, and yeah. 19 years ago already, hard to believe, but uh, yeah. So that that place uh, has a special a special spot in my heart for sure. So what's your Jack Nicholas was my idol. It's always been my idol, golf idol, growing up and to this day. What's your favorite Jack Nicholas story? Oh gosh, for a while probably uh, as far as golfing goes, uh, the '86 Masters. Uh, I remember exactly where I was. Um, you know, everything about the last round, it, it's really weird. I, I can't remember who I played with three days ago, but I can remember, you know, exactly what happened, uh, what was that, 34 years ago. So uh, that was amazing as far as golf goes. Uh, another funny story is uh, the 87 Ryder Cup at Mirfield Village. Uh the year before, literally a year before that, I didn't even have a tour card uh, and, and kind of worked my way through 86 and uh, got a few exemptions. Monday qualified for a few events and started playing really well and ended up winning my first tournament and just had a whole rash of top tens uh, in 87, won the Honda Classic. And uh, next thing you know, I'm sitting in Jack Nicholas's living room or, or kitchen. Uh, before the Ryder Cup, uh, having uh, spaghetti bolognese that Barbara made with, with my first wife, my then first wife. And, of course, I spilt it all over my shirt and I complete, made a complete mess of myself. So it was, it was kind of funny but embarrassing at the same time. So I'm like, wow, <laughs> uh, my life's come a long way in the last year. <laughs> and, and speaking of 87, because you're in the field for the 87 Masters and you had – Great top seventeen finish and I, what what was that like for you? I can only imagine what it's like being a part of that tournament from the the time you get the invitation in the mail to driving up Magnolia Lane for the first time and then trying to stick a tee into the ground on the first tee on Thursday and, and pulling the trigger. What was that like for you? Well, what's amazing to kind of build up to that was I, I went to Augusta. I went to the Masters in 1986 to watch my friend Ken Green. Uh, so I was kind of en route to where I ended up watching Jack win on Sunday. I was in Joplin, Missouri, or on my way to Joplin, Missouri for a, a, a mini tour event. 
So I thought, well, I'll just I'll just stop in Augusta for a few days, check out the Masters, and see what see what that place looks like, and watch Ken for two days before I hit the road to uh, Joplin, Missouri. And while I was out there watching Ken, he le- he led in the first round. By the way, he made about four sixty footers. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Uh, but while I was out there, I was thinking to myself, uh, and mind you, at this time I had no zero, I mean absolutely zero PGA Tour credentials or privileges. I mean, I, I was not on the PGA Tour. And I thought to myself, man, I wonder if I'll ever get to play in this tournament. And uh, sure enough, as it unfolded, uh, you know, five five months later in uh, Abilene, Texas, I won the uh, Southwest Classic. Uh, well, let me, I missed a story. I finished 14th in the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, which at that time, if you finished in the top 16, you got in the Masters. So I was already in the Masters uh, via my U.S. Open finish. And then, anyway, a few top tens later, then I went in Abilene, Texas. And uh, uh, I was going to the Masters in 1997. So it it all happened really quick. And, Mark, you've mentioned, you know, getting your tour card a couple of times. Talk about how you how you had to go about earning that tour card. And then I'm, I'm curious how how that effort compares to today and the guys that uh, get on tour through the corn ferry tour. Is it similar, harder back then than it is now? What's your, what's your insight? I, I think it was easier back then because we actually had 50 spots at tour school. Uh, and, and my first tour school actually was in the summer of 81, which is when I made it. And we had 25 spots because they had two tour schools back then. That was the last year for that. Then start in 1982, uh, they had 50 spots for at least uh, six or seven years, and I kind of made it every other year. I'd made it, and then I'd, I'd you know, lose my card, uh, and then go back to tour school, make it again, finish in the top 125 to 150, but then not make it through tour school, but I still had status uh, in the 125 to 150 range. So that kind of went back and forth for five years. Until finally, at the start of 1986, I had no status, and then that's when I uh, really started playing well and, and Monday qualified for Doral and a few other events. Uh, qualified for the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, where I finished 14th. Uh, Ted May gave me an exemption to Hartford, had a top 10, which got me to the next tournament. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Uh, next thing you know, I'm in Abilene, Texas, and, uh, and I won the tournament and really never looked back from that point. Uh, forward, never lost my card again. And Mark, you've been a pin hunter, what I would say, through the course of your career. I saw a quote a few years back that said, there wasn't a pin that you wouldn't shoot at. Is that just your mindset? Is you go for broke all the time? And, um, you know, where where did that develop? Is that just who you are? Well, I think it developed uh, back in the, in the middle 80s when I started getting a lot of confidence. Uh, and my short game was just insanely good um so i wasn't afraid to to miss a you know short side myself and miss a shot uh where you don't have much screen to get up and down with because i had a really good flop shot and i was a really good putter so i think that's where my uh aggressiveness really kind of was born uh just out of the confidence in my short game uh but you know i i think when i aimed away from a flag um you know, I'd get to the top of my backswing, and I'd go, okay, just put a little pull or push on this thing, depending on where the, if the pin is left or right. 
Uh, and I actually ended up hitting work shots, aiming away from flags. I was better off aiming at the flag, you know, knowing I couldn't miss it right, and then either hitting a good shot or putting a slight pull in my swing. So I kind of adjusted uh, in mid-swing, which, uh, you know, isn't isn't great, because I, I guess I just didn't have the discipline to just aim in the middle of the green and hit it there, you know, like Jack did. I mean, that's how he played his whole uh, his whole career, especially in majors. He'd hit more greens than anybody and just, just make less mistakes, and uh, he won a lot of majors that way. It's hard to do, though. Speaking of majors, you, you win the 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon. You came from three strokes behind going into the final round. Greg Norman actually shoots a, a course record 64 in that final round to get into a playoff with you and Wayne Grady. Um, and it was the first time that they used that uh, four-hole aggregate playoff system. But talk about uh, your experience that week. Yeah, it was, uh, it was it was love at first sight. When I played a practice round on Monday, uh, by the way, I played with Mark O'Meara, Curtis Strange, and Arnold Palmer. So that was a pretty good uh, wow. pretty good way to start the week with that group on Monday. And as we were making our way around the course, I just loved every hole. Uh, I just thought it was Every hole suited my eye. Um, they were in a drought. It was bone dry. In fact, during the tournament one day, there was a fire behind the eighth green. It was that dry. Wow. Uh, but I, I just I just loved the way the holes looked to me, and I knew I was playing well. I'd won uh, two tournaments at the end of 88, and uh, Phoenix in L.A. prior to that in 89. So, you know, I was used to being in the hunt. Uh, but you never think about winning a tournament you know, on a Wednesday night or a Thursday morning, you know, you just, you, you play, 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 play. And then on Sunday, you know, if you find yourself with a chance, then you think about winning. But anyway, Sunday's round. Yeah. Greg birdie, the first six holes. Um, he was probably an hour in front of me and I saw what he was doing. Uh, and I got off to an okay start. I think it was a couple under through seven, but then I just played about four really bad holes in a row. Uh, like or seven, I think I bogeyed seven, nine and ten, and uh, hit it in the bushes on eleven. Ended up making a fifty footer for par on eleven, and you know I didn't think much of it because I was at least five behind at that point. And then it all changed on twelve when I uh, I flew that chip in the hole from left of the green that was impossible. Uh, probably the the play was to bump it in the swale and try to run it up the hill, but I was afraid if I didn't get it up the hill, I was going to make double. So I was just trying to limit, limit the damage and, uh, and hit a flop shot, fly it on the green and, and maybe make a 30 footer. And sure enough, it flew straight in the hole. And after that, I, I really didn't miss a shot the rest of the day. Uh, I, I parted the next couple of holes and birdied 16 and 18 to, uh, at that time, Ty Norman, uh, Wayne Grady still had two shots on us with five holes to go, and, and uh, he bogeyed 14 and 17. And the next thing you know, uh, I find myself in a playoff. So I asked the RNA guy, I said, I assume we're going back to 18. He says, No, we're going to one. And I went, One? He goes, It's the easiest hole on the course. It's a driver and a 60 yard L wedge. I said, that's a strange hole for a sudden death playoff. He says, no, we're playing 1, 2, 17, and 18. I had no idea. Uh, and I said, oh, shoot, we're playing four holes. I think I only had one or two balls left. I said, I better borrow a sleeve of balls. So Tom Watson was standing <laughs> there with his caddy, and he gave he, he was playing the same balls. So 
He, he gave me a sleeve of balls, and uh, anyway, uh, I, I used the same. I used the ball I had, but uh, yeah. And uh, of course, Greg birdies one again. Uh, then he birdies two again, and I, I somehow made a 30-footer on two, and uh, Wayne Grady bogeyed 17. So we both had two shots on him going to 18, and then the, kind of the rest is history when Greg hit it in the bunker, and then the next bunker, and then hit it in the clubhouse and didn't even finish the hole. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty amazing. So there's a couple of things there I, I, I want to get a little bit more detail because on the on the par five sixteenth hole in that final round, you hit driver off the deck to get on in two, and you end up making a birdie on that hole, like you mentioned a moment ago. But talk about the decision to hit driver off the deck. That's not an easy shot to pull off just in normal times, just playing around Nassau with your buddies, and you pull it out and, and make a great shot there in the final round of a major. Talk about that decision. Back then, it was so much easier to hit a driver off the deck than it is today because of the size of the head. Um, I was using tailor-made metal wood. It actually said metal wood on top of it. And that club today looks like a, a seven wood. Uh, that's about the size of the head. It was so small compared to today's drivers. So, And it was a seven-degree driver, but I could hit that thing 100 feet in the air off of bare dirt, which is basically what I did on 16. Uh, I hit a, a nice little drive down there short of the ditch, and I think I still had like 275 to the hole. So I said, well, if I just rip this driver, and, the, and it kind of curves a little to the right, it, it suited my my uh, – my shot that I shaped my driver and just hit this beautiful driver right off the dirt. Uh, you know, it was so dry and so brown. It was literally like hitting a driver off the street and uh, just ripped it. Flew it right on the front of the green, about 30 feet from the hole and two putts of birdie. But it never crossed my mind not not to hit, hit a driver there. I couldn't get my free with there. So I thought, well, I better hit a driver. So let's talk about the last hole and the, and the playoff. Because you hit your drive into the gallery, just a little bit off off of the fairway, and then Norman rips a drive that ends up in the face of the fairway bunker. Was there a was there a big change of emotion? Were were you disappointed with the drive, feeling like now you've given him an advantage, and then it comes right back your way just a couple of moments later? Well, here's here's why I hit a crappy drive because in in regulation. I hit a a really good drive, probably 95% as good a drive as I could hit. And I was four yards short of that bunker. And I thought then, I said, man, if I'd have killed that, I'd, I'd have been right in this bunker. It was like 305, which back then was, you know, not a number anybody's familiar with, uh, even even in hard ground. And, and Greg hits it further than I do. And, and then in regulation, I uh, I hit that eight iron from 161 yards to three feet to tie Greg. So when I got up in the playoff, and back then I never hit a three-wood. I mean, it wasn't a three-wood hole, it was a driver hole. Uh, so I thought to myself, well, pumped up as I am, if I kill this, I might reach that bunker. So, you know, that was kind of one of those swings where I just kind of eased into it and just hit this weak slice out to the right into the where the crowd was and the little white, you know, brown, wispy rough. and Oh, it was a terrible drive. There's no question, but you know, at least it wasn't in the bunker. And and uh, and honestly, Greg had no idea. I don't think that that bunker was reachable. And 
I moved off to the left side of the tee box and watched Greg hit it, and he just ripped it right down the middle with a slight fade. And Bruce Edwards' caddy said, oh, beauty, Greg. He picked up his tee, and they started walking. They didn't even watch it. I stood on the tee box, and as this thing's in midair and it's slightly cutting, I said, is this? I, I knew he killed it. I thought to myself, if this thing kicks just a tad right, it might catch a corner of that bunker. And sure enough, it kicked about 25 degrees to the right, maybe a little less than that, but it was a nice little kick to the right. And I kept watching it, rolling and rolling and rolling. That's back when I could, you know, see past the newspaper. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I, saw, I saw it catch the corner of this little bunker, and I saw it roll up the lip and roll back down. I mean, it, it caught it by a foot. And uh, he had no idea. And I said, he's dead. He's got a, He's just got a sand wedge out. So right then I knew I had the advantage and uh, kind of got nervous. And I walked up there and I saw I had a great lie, 201 yards to the hole. And then I just hit the best shot of my life. I hit a five iron that never left the flag. And uh, it, it looked like it was about two or three feet from the hole, 200 yards back. It was still seven feet short. And I, I think if Greg known I was seven feet, not two or three feet like it looked like, because the crowd went nuts. I think he might have just wedged out and tried to tried to save par and hope I missed. But I think he thought I was so close that I couldn't miss that he had to try a miracle shot. And then that's when he put it in the, the cross bunker 50 yards short of the green and then uh, hit that one in the clubhouse. And uh, that was it. So, yeah, so you get up to the green now and, and you know you could, and I think at that point, right, the, Wayne Grady might have been the only opportunity to, to, to uh, tie you. But you could have three putted from the seven right. and still one. Yeah. So what's it like, you know, being there on the green knowing I got this? Well, the, 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 the only thing that crossed my mind was that I didn't start, you know, making my speech or anything yet. I said, you know, cause Wayne Grady had an amazing shot on there three feet. So he was going to make that to get back to even par. And I was, I was one under. So, right. I could, I could three putt and still win. And I was two under, so I could three putt from seven feet and still win. And the only thing that crossed my mind was, and I've never done this in my lifetime, but some somehow it crossed my mind. I said, don't double hit this. So if you watch a replay of the putt, I kind of, I almost left it short. It barely fell on the front edge because I kind of short stroked it. <laughs> it kind of cut my follow through <laughs> off. So I didn't, uh, I don't know. How do you think of that? Don't double hit a putt. But right. I, I was that nervous. And uh, anyway. Uh, I kind of, I kind of yipped it right in there and, uh, that was it. So yeah, it was, uh, and then everything that happened after that happened so fast. I mean, I don't even remember the, uh, the press conference or, or even what I said. Uh, the next thing I know, uh, my buddy who, who was caddying for me at the time, he lives in Phoenix now, uh, we're in the back of a courtesy car with a bottle of champagne and a claret jug in my lap. And we just looked at each other and started laughing and said, can you believe this? <laughs> can you believe this really happened? Uh, we were just shocked. Yeah, that sort of was my next question. Like, you know, after everything gets quiet and everyone goes home and, and you're left there with the claret jug, you get back to wherever it was you you were staying. What'd you do? Well, all, all week it was a hotel in, in a little town called Air, A-Y-R. And we stayed at, uh, at that time, what was called the British Caledonian Hotel. And on the fourth floor was this kind of cool little bar slash pub slash restaurant. 
And of course, we went up there every night for a beer or two and, and yucked it up with everybody. And all week they're like, yeah, you know, if you win, you got to bring the, the Claret jug back here and we're going to have a party. And uh, I, I said, done deal. We'll be here. And, uh, you know, everybody's just kind of joking, like, yeah, right, you're going to win. And uh, sure enough, uh, as soon as we got back to the hotel, I marched right upstairs, and there was about 100 people in there. Uh, they just went crazy uh, when I walked in there with the jug. And, uh, yeah, we had a we had a good time that night up there, needless to say. <laughs> no doubt. When you look at your career, you know, 13 wins on the PGA Tour, a major. You finished second 27 times. And, then, you know, a major champion is a title that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. You're a major champion. Do you, do you in your quiet moments now, do you revel in the, in the accomplishments and the great things you did? So many great athletes that I've had an opportunity to talk with, not only here on the golf side, but over on the football side. They always, part of what their makeup is, is, is they don't revel enough in the, in the good. They always remember the ones that got away. Does it bother you any of the 27? Do any of the 27 seconds still bother you? <laughs> a lot of them do, and you're 100% correct. Uh, I I don't think I got everything I should out of, out of my career. Um, I should have won more. I, I gave of those 27 seconds, I'll bet I gave half of them away, um, which, you know, you're not going to win every time. You get a chance to, obviously. I know that. Uh, but there were at least six or seven of those that were ridiculous that I lost. And it continued into my Champions Tour career. When I was playing great in my early 50s, I, I gave at least six or seven tournaments away. So, yeah, as I look back on my career, um, you know, it, it could have been a Hall of Fame career. Uh, you know, Sandy Lyle hit that amazing shot in the 88 Masters uh, to beat me by one and birdie 18 out of the flip of the fairway bunker. But, you know, I always think if he wouldn't have done that, then you know, would I have won the 89 Open? So who, who knows? I mean, you can't go back and wonder. But to answer your question, uh, yeah, I've had a I've had a great career and I've had more fun than anybody could possibly probably have. But on the other hand, it uh, it should have been better, and it still bothers me. Mark, you and Peter Costas have had a good uh, relationship. I was reading. Talk about the, your relationship with him. Well, I started working uh, with Peter in uh, 1984, uh, and really that was the first lesson or lessons that I've ever had. And, and uh, he's the one that really got me on the on the right track of I used to hit a big hook like everybody did back when they were kids, you know, with, with crappy balls and wood drivers to hit it somewhere. You had to hook it. Uh, everybody hooked it. And uh, when I saw him in 84, you know, distance wasn't a problem. He says we've got to we've got to get you eliminating the, the big hook and and get you a driver and a driver setup where we can eliminate the left half of the golf course. So that's when I got the seven degree extra extra stiff titanium driver and just started hitting power fades out there. And uh, I, I mean I could aim it right up a, a edge of a lake on the left side of the fairway and know I wasn't going to hit it in it. So. Uh, you know, that helped a lot, obviously. Uh, and that kind of filtered all the way down through my entire game. Uh, and, it, you know, it took a year, year and a half for it to kick in. But like I said, when I started uh, started playing really good in 86, that's, that's when I knew it was all working and uh, that I was going to, you know, be okay out on tour. Peter and I were together for 10 years, and then it kind of, like a lot of player 
teacher relationships that kind of went south for a little bit. Um, he was really busy with TV and really busy with some other players. So that's when I went to see Butch Harmon. So I spent 10 years with Butch, which is great. Won some tournaments with him as well as my, as my teacher. Uh, and then same sort of thing happened. He got super busy with uh, a lot of guys that he was working with. And, uh, you know, and then I, I just kind of said, called Peter back and we've been together since. Uh, now though, it's mainly, uh, phone video lessons like if i'm not playing great uh my wife caddies for me most of the time so i'll uh i'll say okay take two videos from behind and two videos from the side and we'll send them to peter and i'll say okay i kind of got the 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 thin rights or the or the flip hooks or something i don't know what, whatever i'm doing with my iron game uh and you know he'll get right back to me and say okay it looks like you're standing too far away from the ball it looks like you're you're too hunched over or it looks like your left hand grips too weak or, and I know all this, but it sure helps to have somebody tell it to you as opposed to just trying it yourself. So uh, anyway, so back with Peter. Yeah. Mark, um, you won the principal charity classic in 2015 out on the, on the champions tour. And not only was it impressive that you won that event, you did it in bacon themed pants. Where did that come from? Yep. Uh, that was a great week. Uh, we loved Des Moines, so we got there a week early, and I was putting terrible. Uh, wasn't playing very good, so I went to Dick's and I bought a putter from Dick's that just looked good to me. It was a ping answer to putter, which I've got a hundred of, but I was tired of my putter, so I bought a putter. Uh, we played four rounds uh, the week before the tournament, all around Des Moines, and I started putting better and better and better. Anyway. Uh, we have some friends in Des Moines, uh, and I met a lot of people there. Uh, and a guy by the name of Brooks Reynolds, who was the co-founder of the Blue Ribbon Bacon Festival. Uh, they all had these, uh, cool looking bacon shorts. So I said, well, those are cool. You know, can I get a pair? And he says, I'll tell you what, what if I give you a pair of pants and you wear them in the tournament? <laughs> I said, well, I got to see what they look like. And, uh, so he sent me two pair and, uh, I said, okay, I'll, uh, First round, I was playing with, I think, Bernhard Langer and Kenny Perry. So I said, I, I better wear them the first round because we're obviously going to be on TV because uh, we're, like, right in the TV slot group. And, you know, if I play crappy, no one's going to see see where I'm at off the back nine on Saturday and Sunday, so I'll wear them the first day. And sure enough, I think I birdied five of the last six holes to shoot five under. And I thought, well, the second day, I said, well, that worked. I better wear them again. So I wore the other pair. Uh, shot another good round and was uh, tied to the lead, I think, going into Sunday and thought, well, I can't not wear them now. So I put Friday's pair back on and uh, fair enough, I ended up winning the tournament wearing them every day. So it was, uh, it was a pretty funny story. And I still, every every year I go to Des Moines, I still get the, where are the bacon pants? You bringing the bacon pants back out? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you this too. It's hot in Des Moines in, in June when we play there. I mean, it's hot. These are the hottest pants ever ever made uh they're like double lined <laughs> and they don't breathe at all and uh yeah it, it's a it's a workout to wear them but uh it, it was it was a funny story i still have them. so yeah i mean i say why why didn't you wear them the next week you never mess with a streak and you were going good <laughs> why change that's true like, like a bull durham right when you have a streak don't mess with that's the right streak. 
No, man. Yeah, no, I think I just had to retire them at that point. Yeah, until until the next year. I think they're they're only good for Des Moines only. Mark, just a couple more before I let you go. And and um, you've played on four Ryder Cup teams. Is the pressure different in a Ryder Cup than it is playing, whether it's a regular tour event or playing a major? How different is that? It's the greatest pressure you'll face uh, for two reasons. Um, like even when we play in, in, on our tour, when we used to play the par three course in Branson and the uh, Legends of Golf team event, because you have a partner, you, you feel way worse if you miss a four-footer that the team needs than you do if you miss it by yourself. It's just the way it is because your partner's, you know, modern under his breath. I can't believe you missed that, blah, blah, blah. So that, that's just like a, a regular tournament, right? So times that times about a 1,000 when you're playing in the Ryder Cup for your country, for the United States of America, for 11 other teammates, not just one, your captain, the wives, and and every person in America cheering for you. You know, when you screw up there, it's just uh, you can't believe how bad it feels, uh, or vice versa. When you don't screw up and you hit a great shot and you make a birdie and win the hole or you, you birdie the last hole and win your match, there, there's no greater feeling. It's better than winning the tournament individually. It really is. So it's just that's how much it, it, it magnifies because it's a team event and you've got everybody else relying on you, so the pressure is that much greater. But of the four Ryder Cups I played in, uh, you know, even the one the one, one we, I, I won at, at Kiowa, when I lost the last four holes to Monty, I was traumatized because I knew that half a point I lost could possibly cost us the Ryder Cup. Uh, I, I just knew it. And sure enough, if it didn't come down to the last freaking putt, uh, you know, with Bernhard, on 18, and uh, you know it was it was so much for me to handle, and uh, I just didn't handle it well, and I lost it. Uh, and, but you know, pain uh, grabbed me and regrouped me and said, "Come on, let's let's we're gonna be okay." And and he just he was super positive, and sure enough, I I, did, I couldn't even watch the last putt. Pain and I were were huddled down in front of the green, and uh, I heard this. Uh, I was on my knees. I don't know, I was probably praying, and uh, I heard this giant roar, and Payne grabbed me and jumped up and said, we won, we won, we won, and and the rest of it was a complete blur after that. Uh, so, And that was the one we won. So can you imagine the, the ones we lost, uh, how bad that felt. Uh, although at Muirfield, no we, doubt. we made a rally on Sunday, but we still got killed. And then uh, the, the one that really hurt was uh, 89. Uh, with uh, was it eighty nine uh, when Curtis was captain at the Belfry, uh, we should have won that one. Uh, we we tied them and, and four of us hit it in the water on eighteen, and because we lost in eighty seven, they kept the cup. So that everybody was was crushed with that one. Uh, and then we won in ninety one, and then oh uh, two we were tied going into uh, oh no Raymond Floyd was captain. I'm sorry, Curtis was captain in oh two. And we were tied going Sunday, and they didn't cut the greens for the last three days of the tournament, and they were rolling at about a six on the cent meter, and and uh, that was that was genius by Sam Torrance, uh, and they just they killed us because we, we couldn't get the ball to the hole. So, uh, but anyway, Ryder Cups are they're fun, but they're extremely stressful.
Uh, I, I prefer watching them on TV. Even when I lived in Phoenix, I, I got up at, uh, what, 1 in the morning or 1230. I'd get like three hours of sleep and watch watch all night long. It never missed a shot. Uh, so, yeah. I guess one of the things that I, I, I'm curious to get your insight on, we're playing this one this year. Hopefully we get to still have the Ryder Cup this year. Um, right. At Whistling Straits. It's at Whistling Straits, a, a Lynx course, which seems to me like it gives away part of the home course, home turf, whatever you want to call it, advantage, because it's on a kind of golf course that the Euros are used to playing on. Does it make sense that we would allow, or we would put, you know, this uh, into a Lynx course and not something more suited to our players? You know, that's a good point. Um, Whistling Straits is, uh, it's goofier than, than any course over in Scotland or England. I can tell you that right now. Uh, it's, it's, it's visually intimidating, but there's plenty of room to play there. Uh, even the par threes out on the ocean where the pin looks like it's sitting on a cliff, you know, the, you can kind of ramp the ball down there. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a it's a toss up as far as the course goes. I think we could have came up with a much better course that suited our advantage, uh, which which is what the captain's supposed to help decide. But uh, you know, it, it'll still be great. It'll still be fun to watch. And, and I don't think, depending on what happens with the way times are now, I don't think they should have it if uh, we can't have fans out there. Uh, I mean, that's yeah. the whole mystique and atmosphere of the Ryder Cup. You know. Watching Colonial or Hilton Head or something without fans is one thing, but but watching a Ryder Cup without fans going crazy and chanting and all this other crap that goes on, uh, and I, from what I've read or heard, I think almost every player is in agreement with that, uh, and both captains. You know, if we can't have fans, I think we should postpone of the year. I really do. Yeah, I agree. Mark, during this quarantine you and your wife Brenda helped to uh, support caddies for a cause talk about your efforts there yeah this is a, this is kind of a cool deal uh, and it was kind of the, the brainstorm of uh, Rocco Media's caddy his name's Mark Courtois and he just was trying to figure out a way to you know help the caddies that are struggling that aren't making any money and uh, none of us are making any money and uh, he he uh, got in touch with us as well as uh, there's seven or eight other caddies kind of on the board. And we kind of came up with a way to ask people, uh, I think 30 some odd players donated cash uh, and a bunch of players found stuff, you know, hockey jerseys signed by Wayne Gretzky, uh, NASCAR stuff, but you name it uh, from pretty much every sport plus celebrity that any of us know we were able to get stuff to put into this big auction and uh, hopefully raise, you know, what I'm thinking might be close to a couple hundred thousand dollars to uh, divvy up between 70 or 75 caddies uh, on our tour to help them out with the, with these times. It's called uh, caddies for a cause. Uh, the auction it's called the golf auction. Uh, and it's, it's, thegolfauction.com. So if you if you go there, you'll see this caddies for a cause. You can just kind of sign in, and and uh, there's tons of to, uh, cool stuff to bid on. And it it ends on the uh, 21st, which is uh, Sunday. This weekend, right? Yeah, right. This yep. weekend. So there's yep. a few days left. So there's 
plenty of time to uh, to bid on some cool stuff and uh, and help the caddies on the Champions Tour. Mark, one more, and um, you have a fantastic RV, and I've been trying to get my wife on board with us getting one when we retire. I'd love nothing more than home to be wherever we pulled off the side of the road that night. And like I said, you've got a fantastic RV that you and your wife, Brenda, go from tournament to tournament uh, traveling in. Talk about that. Help me out. Oh, it's so much fun. We've been doing it for 10 years, and there's just so many advantages to it. Uh, everything from you have all your own stuff, you know, you don't have to pack and unpack, and, and I love driving it, which is a big thing. Uh, but uh, I know Woody Austin uh, just bought a small bus. Brett Quigley's thinking about buying one, so I think a lot of guys might might start to go this route now. And uh, it's just fun. You just you, you make your plans. You know, you're like, okay, we're going to drive to, uh, you know, on Sunday after we play, we're going to leave and we're going to go to this Walmart and, uh, you know, middle of nowhere, Fayetteville, Arkansas or someplace, and we're going to just sit there and have dinner, have a couple of cocktails, and get up and hit the road in the morning. And then, you know, you just make plans and, and just go and, and get to where you're going. And it's it's just a blast. You have your dogs with you, and uh, we love to travel that way. Uh, it, it sure beats the heck out of flying. So, uh, And even better, we're always going to have a bus. So when I do retire and, and not playing much, we're going to go places we've never been. Uh, you know, Yellowstone and, and Montana, and just all kinds of fun places. So it's going to be great. Yeah, and you mentioned Montana. That's where I want to go. I just gave a beautiful right. scenery and be out, you know. Yeah, need me either. That's exactly what I want to do. Get an RV and let's go to Montana. Right. Mark, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with you and all the great things you're doing? How can they follow you, whether it's online or on social media? Yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, uh, at Mark Calc on Twitter, and, and uh, uh, I'm easy to get a hold of. So just uh, send me a shout and I'll get back to you. Mark, I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and, and being a part of the show tonight. You're fantastic. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. I got a lot more I'd love to get your insights on. You're you're a wonderful interview. All right, Chris. Thanks. Anytime. Thanks, Mark. Take care. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe out there. All right. We'll do. You too. Thanks, Mark. See ya. That's the great Mark Kalkovecchia. Again, on Twitter, at Mark Kalk. What a wonderful guy. What a wonderful interview. And it's a privilege to get to spend that much time with Mark. Hopefully we get the privilege of doing it again real soon. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves. And people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY. And there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required. And they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save. And save and win. At Jim Ellis Automotive, we take pride in our family-owned and operated business. Hi, I'm Stacy Ellis, Vice President of the Jim Ellis Automotive Group. When my granddad, Jim Ellis, founded our company in 1971, 
His goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, my dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. Today, third-generation family members like myself, along with the support of more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values our company was founded on. At Jim Ellis Automotive, we try harder because we sincerely value your satisfaction. That's why we've been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of our 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, still family-owned and operated and where you can always expect the best. Camp Margaritaville RV Resort, where you can just breathe in and breathe out. (sighs) Or move. There's biking, boating, arcade games, hiking, nearby golfing. Or fly through the new Fins Up Water Park. Thrills, chills, twists, and turns. This could be you. Camp Margaritaville at Lanier Islands. An easy one-hour drive from Atlanta. Book your stay today at Camp Margaritaville Lanier Islands.com. 